Hi, everyone. We are back. What's going on? Well, hope everybody had a great weekend. And of course, that everybody is happy and healthy as always. Yes. Uh, of course, we are and Mar we're getting ready to interview Mark Charles. He's going to be joining us any any minute now. Uh, but yep, I see him. Hi, Mark. Okay, Mark is calling in. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us again. Morning, Mark. For having me, we hope that. Uh, oh yes, here we go. Wait, 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 oh, oh. wait, oh, oh, yep. here, just a second. I'm too sleepy this morning. <laughs> you say you've got their supper. Nope. Here it comes. Here we are. There we go. <laughs> I was a little unprepared. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Ladies and it. gentlemen. There, there oh. it is. There it is. Yes. That's the right one. See, they expect that from me. but Of course. Of course. But we hope to hear that you are uh, happy and healthy at this point, too. Yes. Thank you. I'm doing well. Been uh, staying home uh, throughout this pandemic. So this is probably the longest stretch in my adult life. I haven't traveled anywhere. So, uh it's been it's been a very interesting past six months. And I think for a lot of people it is like they're starting to get to be their wits end, you know. It's true. Yeah, it's something like we had read. Um, I my psychologist I follow on Twitter, Dr. Brandy Lee, who'd said about how she said she said that uh, some mental illness is contagious. It's catchable, and she talked about how especially it's um, uh, what is it? It's a uh, uh, Everybody's going basic. Right? Yeah, communal communal psychosis in a certain way. We see it seems that we uh, see people falling apart at an extended level at this point. Well, I mean, I have read some reports that you know just because of the lack of social interaction and you know the, the stay home orders, and I think the other thing that causes a lot of challenges is the way our nation has been coping with the pandemic has not been with long-term planning. It's been in four to six weeks stint. So it's, you know, it's, let's get through the next six weeks and then we'll decide where we're gonna be. Um, you know, one of the things I've done with my family, even from the beginning of the pandemic is prepare my children. Yeah, well, back last March when they came out of school, I said, yeah, you're probably not gonna go back to school this semester. Um, and over the summer I began preparing them. Yeah, I doubt you're gonna go back to class until 2021, you know, um, the way most of our leadership has been coping with this is, well, let's get through the next six weeks and see where we're at. And so then you get people getting their hopes up and hopes up, right. forward to something. And, yeah. then, and then you have this crash and it starts up and down, up and down instead of a longer, more steady, you know, and right now with the schooling, this is one of the biggest issues, you know, because of the immense challenges of doing school online with the digital divide and lack of access to online um, resources and everything else. Imagine if back last March, rather than thinking we'll be out of this and there'll be some sort of miracle that's gonna happen in the next six weeks, what if we begin planning? Yeah, it's gonna be 12 to 18 months until we get a vaccine. So let's begin planning now for a year to a year and a half worth of online learning. 
Let's yeah. get training for our, our teachers. Let's get resources for our students. Let's uh, figure out how we're going to help parents who have to work either from home or in the office uh, and how schooling is going to work in this situation. You know, if we would have been planning for this back last March, instead of going through these six-week stints of, well, let's just get through six more weeks and then we'll see where we're at, This is, I think that's what's been exacerbating uh, the the some of the psychological wear on people is, yeah, is I'm sure. down. Yeah, like I was telling Jolene the um um because your dad's involved in the schools. It's true. And I was saying how it would be great. I mean, because my senior year of high school I had to go for two hours a day to finish up my last credits. But if your grades are really good and then you don't have to come in at all. So that's incentive for the kids to do better. I would think so. Incentive for the kids to do better and also incentive to not go in and potentially get infected. Right. But, and also what I said to Joanne too, is that um, they're in a, a hurry to open up the schools because it has to feed the machine to whereas if you had universal basic income, a lot of people would, ha would ha breathe somewhat, of course, not as total sigh of relief, but somewhat of a sigh of relief. Like, well, you know, at least we have this, you know, to it's true. Now I have to ask too. How would how would you handle like, of course, uh, infection rates are going up again because, like you said, we're not handling it very well here in the United States, and as such, it's around the world that's affecting it too. How would you handle the increased infection rates? Yeah, I we what we need is we need strong and consistent leadership, um, beginning at the federal government level, going all the way down to the local level, and we have not seen that. As I was saying earlier, the way not only has the federal government dealt with this, but many local communities have dealt with this by coping with it for four to six week periods. And so there's there's been this sense of, well, you know, first we said, well, we'll be back in business by the beginning of May. And then they said, well, yeah. by summertime, things will be back. And they say, well, by August or September, we'll be back in school. We're coping with this global pandemic in four to six week segments. And therefore there is no long-term planning that's been taking place. And people have been going up and down emotionally as they look forward to something yes. happening and then they get let down because nothing's happening. And so what we need is we need consistent leadership. And this is the challenge with both the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, even right now, Joe Biden, I think it's today or tomorrow is beginning a public campaign schedule. He has a speech that's scheduled either today or tomorrow, I believe, in Pennsylvania, um, and he's beginning a public campaign schedule. It wasn't until maybe, what, a week, two weeks before the Democratic National Convention that he made the decision that he was not going to give his acceptance speech in person? Yeah. Two weeks. You know, our campaign, we shut down all of our public campaigning last spring and just Two weeks before the convention, Joe Biden finally said, "Oh yeah, we're probably not going to do that." And so, but see, that's that's the that's the, is, that's the difference between candidates. yeah, and that's, that's the right. difference between you and the other two candidates. The other two candidates really don't give a shit about people or anybody else except re-election. You care about the greater good, even if it's going to cost you by not going out and campaigning. Well, you know what? That's the good thing to do. That's the right thing to do. It's true. Again, it's and, it's and this psychosis that America has now to where what I really, really think about 
is the children. Like when I was on the bus the other day, I saw an older woman. What I would assume it was their grandmother with a uh, maybe a first or second grader. And the girl was sitting next to her. She looked scared out of her mind. She, the kid, you know, you can tell when a kid is scared. Yeah. This kid yeah. looks scared out of her wits. And I'm thinking to myself, so now this kid's growing up to where, of course, you look around and there's a, as a kid, you, there's a new normal and there's a new, you know, okay, when you're, how to behave and whatnot. So these kids are growing up and, and watching everybody's behavior and it's batshit crazy. And then, okay, well, that's normal. That, that's my baseline of being normal now. So the yeah, long-term effects where- that the children are going to have is my concern. Even when the pandemic is over, if it is, and, and this, that, the other thing, but it's still a long-term. And we've been lacking consistent leadership. We have not had um, either side really doing long-term planning and looking at this over the long-term. There's always Except- been this hope that somehow before we get a vaccine, we're gonna go back to normal. And it's because both the Democrats and the Republicans continue to center the economy instead of the health and the well-being of the citizens of the of of our country oh yeah speaking speaking of the economy like wow what are your feelings on do you see the economy going back to any sense of normal are we going to have to adapt to a new normal uh post-covid or even currently in COVID? well again this is the challenge is right now there's been and especially within congress there has been I don't know what I want to call it lapse, but they, there's been a, a lack of uh, of urgency to deal with the economy because at the moment Wall Street is doing fantastic. Wall Street yes. is making money hand over foot, and the the one percent is increasing their wealth. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. on Main Street, we have you know businesses are shutting down and small businesses are 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 struggling, and people are are you know not able to have any sort of income. Uh, income security, our food security, our rent security. And so there's this massive disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. And that disconnect existed even before the pandemic. The pandemic just just highlighted it and made it very, very clear. And so one of the challenges I think we're facing is, I, I did some research on this a few weeks ago, is I looked at the leadership, our congressional leadership, because right now, we are in the midst of the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. And our Congress cannot even agree on extending unemployment benefits, right? Yes. This is is how dysfunctional we are. And I looked at our leadership of Congress from both parties, and seven of the 10 leaders, five from each of the parties, have been in office since prior to the year 2000. This means they have had no income insecurity, no food insecurity, no job insecurity during the Great Recession, during the government shutdowns, and now during the pandemic. So while the nation has gone through these huge challenges with our jobs, with our economy, with the the ineptness of the government, and yet these people have had been making very generous salaries with great health care, and they have not felt any of that insecurity. And so it's no wonder that now in the midst of this, again, the greatest economic downturn we've had since the Great Depression, they can't even decide if they want to extend unemployment benefits. It's because they have been out of touch with the normal day-to-day life of what it means to be an American for at least 20 years, if not longer. 
Yeah, so you, for, you forget pretty where, fast. The, oh, absolutely. So this is so then now the the hardship just becomes something you read about. It doesn't become something that you actually experience. And so this is where I mean, this is a great case for term limits. You know, this is oh my goodness, absolutely case. in touch with the people that they are representing rather than out of touch for decades so much that they can't even agree on on extending unemployment benefits or adding some sort of stimulus. Yes, now that Wall Street's making money hand over foot, they can't seem to make any sort of headway on what to do about the average American. But that's the um, that's the thing about Wall Street. Wall Street always it's um, reactionary. But that's how most administrations have been. There's, it's never precautionary or never. It's always react. And with with yeah. Congress, first of all, uh, getting back to Joe Biden, real quick. Um, there's a guy that basically has had a job for 47 years. I met a lot of people in my life, a lot. Yeah. I through my parents all over the world. As a matter of fact, I I have relatives in Germany. I don't know anybody who's had a job for 47 years. So how is he going to tell, how is he going to even know and what that's I, about? I want to highlight this and I want to do this. I want to do this gently. Okay. But the other day it was, it was during the, um, during the democratic national convention. And I forget if it was an interview or where it was, but Joe Biden was in a speech or somewhere else, but he was highlighting, Right. There's been a lot of talk about the, the tragedy he's felt in his life with the death of his wife and the death of his children. And again, these are horrific experiences that we don't want to wish on anybody. Of course. In talking about that, Joe Biden said that he could relate to the needs of Americans because he had a point in his life where he needed health insurance. He absolutely did. He needed it for his wife. He needed it for his children. He needed it after these moments. Now, he said because he needed that health insurance, he could relate with the average American. The problem is for many Americans, it's not that they need insurance, it's that they don't have insurance. Yes. And so to say, I can relate with you because I once needed my insurance even helps understand how out of touch because so many Americans... Yes, they need insurance, but the problem is, is they don't have insurance. And so, and so someone telling them, oh, I understand you because when I needed insurance, I had it. It's like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is we need insurance and we don't have it. Yes. And, and this is where, again, this is just where, and I, I want to do this gently because I, you know, I, I lost my brother when I was in high school and I would never wish that experience on anybody. Except, of course, you know, I'm sorry to hear about brother. that. Is, is a horrific experience. But we also need to understand that he, Joe Biden is very much relating to America from a place where he is not feeling the insecurity that many Americans feel on a day to day, whether it's paying the rent, whether it's keeping their job, or whether it's having health insurance when they absolutely well, he, well, he's full of malarkey because just that's why he lost the first two elections because he literally took that one guy uh, in England in the UK literally took this politician's speech as I'm talking speech as far as this when this politician was saying I remember my parents coming home both of them were coal miners and coming home with a bubble and my dad had 
you know, whatever lupus or whatever it was. It and Biden's going on word for word exactly, and they have the the two sides of the tape where the one guy had said it. He copied this guy's speech and his life. Plagiarism. It was played more than once. Yeah. And but it goes to show, you know, I I just it, it leaves me not in a happy place. Yeah. Well, I've got I've got to ask you too, because like you're saying, with all the insecurity there is right now, because clearly that's a sign Congress, of a psychopath. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's true. Um, but yeah, clearly we're in very uh, very unstable time. Understandably. No, I would I would not say that. I would not agree with that. But anyway, okay, go ahead and go on. What what part? Okay. Go ahead and go on. I, what part? Go ahead and go on. Okay. Well, uh, I, I was gonna, about uh, being in an no, unstable just time. About, no, just about a psychopath. I would not. Um, I would okay. not characterize Joe Biden that way. Okay. Okay. And that's hey, that's ahead. oh, that's all right. Well, I was going to ask you the um, what are your feelings on being in an unstable time now? What are your feelings on uh, universal basic income? And even like we've uh, we've talked to you before about uh, whether it's Medicare for all or having an option of expanded Medicare. What are your feelings on that? I mean, I very much. Um, a, agree that we healthcare is a right, not a privilege. And I think we need to find a way to um, get healthcare to as many, to all of our citizens. We need to find a way to do that. Um, I also really appreciate uh, the whole conversation that Andrew Yang brought into this election with the need for universal basic income. I like the way that he is um, discussing it Kind of outside the box you know he's he's looking at automation he's looking at ai he's looking at the advances in technology and while we absolutely want to continue to innovate we want to continue to use these tools and resources that we have we also have to recognize that these tools and resources have real day-to-day -day impact on people's jobs and livelihood and so something like universal basic income begins to come into play there now my biggest concern is not each of these programs, but many of the social programs that the Democrats were advocating for during the primary, they proposed funding them through taxing billionaires. Yes. And my biggest concern is I don't like making programs that are dependent upon taxing billionaires because that requires an economy that continues to produce billionaires. And that's the Correct. problem. And so I would much rather invest time and energy in how do we do these things without and, and create an economy that doesn't produce billionaires. How do we actually have a more equitable economy that doesn't have such a gap between the haves and the have nots? Yes. Um, you know, and so these are the things that I'm trying to look at. Well, I, I absolutely agree the universal basic income. Um, is a very innovative way to, to solve the problems we're facing. And while, yes, healthcare is a right, not a privilege, I don't want to get there by merely taxing billionaires because that means we have to continue producing billionaires. All right. Now, would you think, uh, would you see something along the lines of, because like you're saying, you're mentioning about billionaires. It is highly, highly inequ inequitable between the, uh, the haves and the have-nots here, and it seems to be growing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as far as you have, like you'd said, the uh, those in the one percent are getting wealthier and wealthier during what's going on, and then there's a massive increase in homelessness 
for everybody else. Would you think would something along the lines of raising the minimum wage work or does uh, has your team started working on something as far as uh, a, uh, a solid plan that would actually start to bring the, uh, well, or, uh, to say- uh, Like a flat tax. Shrink the, yeah, like a flat tax or even something to shrink the gap between those who are able to get by and those who can't. I would agree we absolutely do need to um, raise the minimum wage and we need to have a livable minimum wage. Yes. You know, this is one of the sticking points even on the, um, the extending the unemployment benefits is that when they added the $600 to the unemployment benefits and most states pay between $200 and $300 a week in unemployment benefits. So when they added the $600 onto that, that actually made unemployment livable. Like yes. They could now, and so, and and again, and this is what Mitch McConnell and many of the Republicans were complaining about, is saying, well, we're actually disincentivizing people to go back and get a job. Well, that's the problem with the economy, is they, we were asking them, we were giving them a livable sum of money on a weekly basis, yes. where they could mm -hmm. actually pay their rent, pay their bills, buy their groceries, and maybe even put a little bit of money away. This is not, by any amount, any stretch of the imagination. This isn't a high life luxurious amount of money but this is enough to get by and um and uh then we were asking them to okay let's give up your eight to nine hundred dollars a week and go back to a job that is going to only pay you four to five hundred dollars a week yes see this is the problem is and right now we've invested trillions of dollars in the past few months the past several months trying to prop up an economy that wasn't working in the first place. And so this is where we need to go back and, and pay livable wages, find a way to help small businesses afford those livable wages, find a way to, again, I, I, I struggle to call it a tax. And the reason I struggle to call it a tax is because when you tax billionaires, for instance, what basically, the impression they get is, well, we've earned this money. So Michael Bloomberg in the debate said, I've earned my billions of dollars. I worked hard for them. No, you didn't, Michael. You you cheated your way to a billion dollars. You 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 you, you uh, took advantage of the taxpayers and I made a billion dollars. You did a lot of things to get a billion dollars. You did not earn it. Yeah. Um, and he proved that when he dropped his election and then he, he let go of all his employees when he had promised they would have a job till November. Yes, that's how you get your billion dollars is you break your word and you lie and you, you cheat your employees. <laughs> But yeah. Um, but so what you do is you give corporations and even the one percent this impression that they've earned this money, and now they need to pay it back in taxes. And so it's almost a, a benevolent action, right? They feel like, okay, I've earned this money, but now I'm going to be a very good person and actually pay my taxes. Yeah. Rather than saying no, actually. You can't earn that much money. Like if your business, Jeff Bezos, requires you to have clean warehouses and you make billions of dollars a year and your executives make hundreds of millions of dollars a year and you hire people to clean your warehouses, which are essential to your business hat working, and you only pay them 10 to $15 an hour. You are not. <laughs> you are. You are treating these essential workers as expendable. Yes. You are not paying them the value that they are to your business. 
And so again, rather than giving Jeff Bezos the impression that you've earned your $200 billion, and now we want you to benevolently pay some of that back in taxes so other people can actually eat, I would actually rather make it much harder for people like Jeff Bezos to earn $200 billion. Well, they actually did. I think, I think during the uh, first pandemic or during the Great Depression, it was around that era, I read an article where um, they – uh, incomes and salaries actually were capped at a certain, I think it was, and it, don't quote me, I read it about six months ago. Okay. It, or the beginning of the pandemic where okay. I think it was capped at either 250000 or a million dollars a year and anything above that would go to either fight the pandemic or help uh, with the uh, World War II costs. And it was only implemented for a year or two until the war was over and then it went back they took that back out and nobody complained. I mean, of course, I'm sure a couple people yeah, complained, but so. when, when you're looking at, you know, the third Reich and it was going to be, well, if we don't defeat these guys, everybody's on earth is going to have blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, if we don't stop them, no, nobody minded spending money then. That's true. Would you, would you think something along the lines of like, uh, would, uh, as far as, like you said, making it a lot tougher for somebody to become a billionaire, and like you said, it's through exploitation and even theft on a certain level, would an income cap be a good choice? Or do you think there are better options for that? I, I struggle to have an income cap because one, okay. of the, one, of the, you know, one of the challenges is um, being able to I want to make sure we, we continue to innovate and motivate people. Um, and so there, right, there's a fine line where we have to walk between how do we continue to encourage people to be innovative and motivated to do their best. Um, you know, if, if, there, if there's a cap, that's going to, I think, deter some people from being able to innovate um, and, and from really giving their best to things. I, I think we have to do several things. And some of these we can accomplish legislatively. Okay. You know, some of these we have to change American values, right? America, Western culture, is highly individualistic. And so yes. the goal is, can I earn my billion dollars? And yet, what we are understanding, in, in not only now, but through globalization, is that we're, we're a global village, you know? And the way that you live absolutely affects the way that your neighbors and people around you live choices you make affects the, the, what happens to the people who are in proximity to you. And because the world's becoming smaller due to globalization, we actually have a greater impact on people even all around the globe based on how we live today. And so we need to actually train not just America, but a lot of Western culture how to be much less individualistic and how to have a higher value for the thriving and the prosperity of the entire community. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders loves to talk about, and many politicians love to say, America is the richest country in the world. Well, that's not true. Yes, our, maybe maybe we have people who have tremendous amount of wealth, but we have one of the highest gaps of, of income inequality. Hmm. Of, I think we're second um, as far as income inequality. And so... You, the only way we're the richest country in the world is if you, your understanding of wealth is incredibly individualistic and colonial. Um, and so we have to rethink our values 
as Americans, even as Western culture and society, and say, how do we actually create values? How do we model values that are much more communal instead of only individualistic? Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a good way to look at it. And well, actually, speaking of even um, communal, uh, a big uh, big sticking point for a lot of people right now is immigrants, uh, even talking about illegal immigration or anything like that, and even refugees coming to the U.S. And it's the whole, there are, of course, there are those of us who are understanding, all right, there, there are people who need somewhere to go, so here they are. And then there are other people who are just seeing them all as criminals and that they need to be need to be gotten rid of. Uh, do you, does your there would no work ever get done then? Uh, it's true. Does your team have a plan for uh, handling uh, how to handle uh, so many in, in, again undocumented yeah undocumented workers and even refugees that are coming here hoping for a better life? Yeah. So one of my one of my cornerstones of my immigration plan or policy is we need to completely rethink immigration. Um, you know, I was out, this was probably almost 20 years ago, I was out living on the reservation on the Navajo Nation. I was herding sheep with uh, one of the elders in our community. He lived there most of his life. He spoke better Navajo than English, and he and I were out herding sheep. And as we were walking through the field, this is like 2003, so this is 17 years ago, 2004 maybe. And George Bush was just beginning to introduce this dialogue on immigration reform. And I asked this elder, I said, you know, a lot of our countries talk about immigration reform. I'm curious what your thoughts are. And he looked at me and he said, well, there's already some of them here. Maybe we shouldn't worry about borders anymore. Uh, yes. In the country, you immediately think he's talking about the 14 million undocumented who come over the southern border. <laughs> nope. Because we're on a reservation, because, yep. we're yeah. because he's a boarding school survivor, you have to at least pause and ask, is he talking about the 14 million coming over the southern border, or is he talking about the 300 plus million who've been coming over since 1492? Yes. And I like the ambiguity so much, I didn't even ask him to clarify. I just left it there. Yeah. And from that moment on, I began telling people, without natives at the table, the United States of America is incapable of comprehensively and justly reforming immigration law. Without natives at the table, all we have is one generation of undocumented immigrants trying to figure out to do with another generation of undocumented immigrants, and there's no integrity in the dialogue. It doesn't matter if you're building a fence to keep people out or you're tearing one down to let people in. If you do not have the indigenous people of the land at the center of the dialogue, you don't have the integrity to do either. And so one of the things I've been advocating for, and this goes back long before my campaign, is that we need an immigration policy that is shaped and rooted in the thinking and input from the indigenous nations here of Turtle Island. I agree on that. Totally. So this is something I really want to do is what if I get and, and we also need to end the, the dehumanizing practices we have of whether it's putting people in cages or separating families at the border. We need to end these dehumanizing practices that we have. But for long-term policy, we need to get input from the indigenous nations of the island. And we need to understand, right, right now we have, again, there's a, a large flux of people coming over our southern borders, 
into our country. But we are not asking the question, what have we done as a nation, both recently and throughout our history, to create the problems and the challenges in the lands where these people are coming from that's causing them to leave here. Yeah, to, yeah, to where it's so bad, they're willing to risk have them have be separated from your kid, their kids and have them put in cages. How bad is it where they came from? Yeah. And, and a lot of the times it's because there have been practices, colonial practices by the U.S. or other Western nations that have caused problems within those countries, which is now causing people to, to, to leave those nations and go to um, their colonizers, whether it be us or other European nations. And so again, this goes, this goes into my foreign policy, which is one of my goals as one, one of the nominations I'm looking for, forward most to making, I might have shared this with you before I forget, is I okay. want to name a Native, a Native American as my Secretary of State. Okay. I want to nominate I'd a like Native person as my Secretary of State. The reason is, is most of our allies, especially NATO allies, France, Germany, the UK, all, all of our European NATO allies, most of these are colonial nations, right? France was once the largest landholder, colonial landholder here in the US. Mm. The whole Louisiana Purchase was land claimed, quote unquote, discovered by France that they then sold to the US. And so, again, most of our closest allies are they themselves colonial nations. And so when you ask, what is it that we have in common with our allies, it's a history of colonialism. And so just like what I'm trying to do domestically is to deal with the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy in our foundations to create a common memory so that we can actually move forward with a healthier community, we need to do that not just domestically, but we need to do that internationally. We have to look at what is it that ties us to our closest allies and how do we begin to decolonize those relationships, create common memory there, remove the racism, the sexism and the white supremacy from our foreign policy so that us and our allies can actually be better global citizens. And I would argue right now, much of Western Europe is not a healthy global citizen. And I think other okay. nations would uh, see us then as a, as uh, in better eyes, you know, and then, then the light they have now. Perhaps. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't know. I, we're I, not, I, we're losing our reputation, especially over the last few years, but it's uh, well, been I, ongoing. Again, this is, this is not even losing our reputation, you know, uh, and I, <laughs> I've traveled internationally. I've, I've been in a lot of countries around the world and I can tell you how vastly the conversation changes once the white Americans walk out of the room. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. Because when there's a white American in the room, whether it's in a, in a mission field, or I'm sure this happens politically too, right? We are one of the, not only are we one of the wealthiest nations in the world, if you're in a very colonial sense, yes. but we are also the only nation in the world that's dropped nuclear bombs on civilians, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. And so other nations are highly motivated to appease us because not only do we flaunt our wealth and, and use it to our own ends, but we also have demonstrated that if we get pushed not enough, trusted, we will absolutely destroy people, which highly motivates 
nations to get on our good side. And so it's fascinating then to watch what happens to the dialogue once the white American leaves the room. And I will tell you, at least in my experience, that most nations around the world understand American history better than most Americans do. They know how corrupt, how violent, how colonial we are and we've acted. And there's very little, you know, one of the things I talk about is the difference between power and authority. So power is the ability to act and authority is the right of jurisdiction. For power to be effective, you have to demonstrate it, which we do. We demonstrate our wealth, we flaunt our wealth, and we've demonstrated our power, not only in, in Japan with Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but we demonstrated it um, you know, in the, the start of the Iraq war with shock and awe. You know, even President, President Trump dropped the mother of all bombs in one of his bombing raids. We flaunt our power. And then the world is very aware of that. But we rarely, if ever, talk about our authority, our integrity to act. Why? Because by and large, as a nation, we don't have any. Huh. If, if the United States loses its wealth yes. and loses its nuclear weaponry, tell me what nation in the world actually listens to us. It's true. Most none of them. Yeah, I can't agree. We have a ton of power. We have very little authority. And this is true in our immigration law. And so this is why, again, by bringing natives into the dialogue, I would love it if our immigration policy actually had some authority behind it besides just power. I would love it if our, if our foreign policy actually had some authority behind it instead of only power. I would actually love it if, if we could actually have integrity in dealing with nations around the world instead of only flaunting our wealth or demonstrating our power. And this is where naming a Native American Secretary of State who will have a very different common memory, a different understanding of who our nation is and what we've done in the past. And so not only will the president be Native, but then our our primary ambassador to the world will also be Native and have a different worldview and a different memory. I think we can begin to start the process of decolonizing a lot of our foreign relationships and actually begin to build relationships not based on power, but actually built on integrity and even, even an understanding of us living with integrity and even having some authority. All right. What a, what I was gonna say. What a level-headed and logical way to uh, to look at it. That makes sense. Now you're talking about again. Uh, you want to have a uh, ne another Native American as a uh, Secretary of State. Uh, what particularly chose you? Well, made you choose Adrian Wallace as your VP running mate? Because you yes, were so originally going to be with Sednam Curry, but now it's Adrian Wallace. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, we made the decision a few, maybe about six weeks ago, I think it was. Um, and we, we had originally announced Sudanam as our vice presidential candidate, and she was a part of our team, and I was very excited to have her on our team. The, the reason I, I invited her to, to be, and I extended an invitation to her to be our vice presidential candidate, was because of the work she had done to begin to 
um, not only understand the doctrine of discovery, but try to synthesize that with her political policies. And I, I was very excited to begin to continue her that work with her and have her a part of our team as we were trying to, as a campaign, to wrestle with the doctrine of discovery and how do we begin to synthesize that understanding of that history into our policies and into our campaign. Um, when she uh, joined our team, we, as you have with any team member, we had a few hiccups with as far as uh, communication and understanding of, of what we were doing. And we were in the process of working through uh, some of those um, hiccups when we came to an impasse. And unfortunately, we had to make the decision that we were going to um, uh, move forward without pseudonym on our campaign. And that was, that. I was sad about that. I, I really liked pseudonym and I, I wanted her to be a part of this process, but we weren't able to move forward with that. And so that left us without a candidate. And as we were getting closer and closer to a lot of the deadlines within the states, um, you know, we, we had to ramp up our, our VP search again. And uh, when, when we began to ramp up our search again, uh, I was talking, Adrian was already serving as my campaign manager. And he had helped lead our first process of, of searching for a VP. And uh, because he was already our campaign manager, I had never even considered him as a potential VP partner because he was actually leading our search. And so when we began looking again, um, I, I just mentioned it to a few staff and thought, well, what would you think if we brought Adrian into the process? And they thought that was a good, good idea. So we actually had some, um, some new people come in to help us vet candidates and uh, put Adrian's name, talked to Adrian about it, and he was very agreeable to joining that search and asked him to join the process. And uh, he was vetted by our team. And we were very excited to see what good of a match he was going to be for our campaign. Um, and so uh, Adrian, you know, he's run for local office in, in Kentucky. He's worked in politics for a number of years. He's also a veteran. Um, and uh, he, has, he brings a lot of experience with community development. And uh, he's actually been wrestling with my own teachings on the Doctrine of Discovery for several years now. And so he's brought in some awareness of that and, and bringing some of those dialogues into the table and even into his own campaigns that he ran before I met him. And so when we looked at all of that and looked at the experience he had and looked at um, you know where we stood both in terms of our goals, what we were trying to do, and the way we were going to be running our campaign, we realized that Adrian was going to be a very good match for our VP. And so I extended an invitation to him after that vetting process to join our team as the VP candidate. And he uh, was very honored and excited to accept. So um, while I, I, I'm very sad we weren't able to continue moving forward with Sudanam, and I wish her the best, uh, I think. She has a lot of passion and a lot of things she wants to do, and I wish her the best. Um, I'm also, uh, um, I'm also, uh, I don't know how to say this. I'm also very glad that we are moving, that we're moving forward with, with Adrian. Not that I would have ever wanted to replace Sudanam. Um, but it worked out. Yeah, it all worked out, worked out and, for everybody. Um, I think it's going to be a, a good thing for our campaign. 
and I'm glad we were able to do it uh, fairly quickly. It, it sounds like it all worked out for all involved. It sounds like it worked out for everybody involved. That's true. That does sound good. Now, one thing I, I want to say for any of our listeners who maybe are not have not gotten to read, which, uh, by the way, I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Mark Charles has a great book called um, Uncomfortable Truths. You can or unsettling truths. Yeah. You look it up, unsettling truths. I'll post a link to it here on this page in just a moment. But for those who've not gotten to read it yet, uh, you've mentioned the doctrine of discovery a few times. Would you like to explain doctrine of discovery to our listeners? Yeah. So the doctrine of discovery, the 30 second elevator version is it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church, um, written between 1452 and 1493. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So that's the doctrine that the European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people because they didn't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, quote unquote, discover America. Because you can't discover lands already inhabited. You can steal those lands. You can conquer those lands, you can colonize them, but you can't discover them unless you dehumanize the people who are already there. So that doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of our nation. The Declaration of Independence, 30 lines after the statement on the created equal, refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. The Constitution, which starts with the words, we the people, Article 1, Section 2, never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. 13th Amendment doesn't actually abolish slavery, it keeps it legal in the criminal justice system. In 1823, and in cases all the way up to 2005, the Supreme Court references the doctrine of discovery and the legal understanding that natives are savages and therefore cannot have title to land um, as the legal precedent for land title. Oh, we lost connection so, with you. Oh, we there you go. We got you now. Okay. Sorry, and so between 1823 and 2005, the doctrine of discovery gets referenced by the Supreme Court as the legal precedent for land titles. <gasps> and so this, people have, don't know it, they've never read it, it's deeply shaped the foundation of the nation. And it has had a huge impact on the way that just life is conducted here, and even the way the nation thinks about itself. Um, and so even though, for example, our nation is as genocidal as Nazi Germany, as abhorrent and as unjust as that era of history. Most Americans don't think about it that way. Why? Because there is a legal understanding that natives are savages. They weren't people. And so, therefore, it wasn't genocide. Um, you know, and this is this is the the challenge. Even there's there's a TEDx talk I gave um, about a year, two and a half years ago, 2018, year and a half ago, and it was it's titled "We the People: The Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History." Mm. And I go through the Supreme Court cases, and I lay out mm. how the 2005 Supreme Court case, the City of Sherrill versus the United Nations in mean, New York, is probably one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions in my lifetime, and it was written. Again, it references the doctrine of discovery, basically implies natives are savages. And it was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why? Isn't she the, 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 the liberal voice of dissent on a very conservative Supreme Court who's 
advocating for the marginalized? Yes, she is. But when it comes to an issue of land titles, because they're based on the doctrine of discovery, white supremacy becomes a bipartisan value. There was a case just literally two months ago, McGirt versus the state of Oklahoma, where the Supreme Court again concluded that the United States Congress can at any point it wishes, and their actual quote is, anytime they can muster the will, the United States Congress can break treaties and disestablish reservations with Native nations, and nobody will hold them accountable. This was literally two months ago in an opinion written by Neil Gorsuch and signed and agreed to by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, basically saying Natives essentially have no rights before the United States Congress. Huh. That's crazy. Despite being, despite being human beings, and despite being, well, yes, say, uh, na as natives, you were the first we have, ones here. We have no sovereignty. We have no sovereignty. We have no, we have no rights before even our, even the treaties that were signed, and the 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 Constitution says treaties are the treaty, are the supreme law of the land. And the McGirt case, again, just two months ago, stated that any time the United States Congress can muster the will, they can break treaty with native nations and they can disestablish reservation lands and there is nobody to hold them accountable. That's nuts. That's pretty terrifying. That's nuts. It, it really is. It's, and this is the problem. This is how deeply the doctrine of discovery has impacted our country. You know, and even even if you even if you look at treaties, okay. So we just broke treaty, right? We pulled out of the Iran nuclear treaty just a few um, during the Trump administration. The Obama administration signed a nuclear treaty with Iran, and the Trump administration pulled out of it. Now, about a month ago, um, at the United Nations Security Council, the U.S. tried to basically trigger some uh, some. Uh, I forget what they were called, tried to trigger some, some actions based on that treaty because Iran wasn't keeping the treaty. And the U.S. was the one that tried to basically enact those, those actions against Iran. But the U.S. pulled out of that treaty. So basically, we have no say in it again. But now we want to be the one to do and, something about it, even though we're technically not part of it. Now we want to do and, and this is the problem, you know? And so, again, if you look at, and if we just go back to the McGirt case, which is about the Creek Nation and their, their reservations that were established in Oklahoma. And basically, um, the, the, the argument was um, the McGirt and the Creek Nation were arguing that these reservation lands, eastern Oklahoma is reservation land, and uh, therefore it needs to be treated as such. And the state of Oklahoma was saying, well, we've never treated it as reservation land. We've always, since we've been established as a state, and uh, the courts have all but disestablished as reservations, and white people have moved in, so it's not reservation land anymore. And the, the Supreme Court said, they ruled and said, well, the state of Oklahoma doesn't have the authority to break treaty or disestablish reservation lands. They said the courts don't have the, the right to disestablish reservation lands. And they said historical precedent, the white settlement doesn't have the right to disestablish reservation lands. And so the case was actually a win for McGirt and the Creek. Yes. Nation. 
but the but the opinion went on to say, but any time the U.S. Congress can muster the will, they have every right to break treaty with native nations and disestablish reservation lands, and there's nothing anyone can do. And so again, the Creek Nation had a treaty that brought them from the East Coast to Oklahoma. Now, most people think treaties are only about native rights, right? They think the, the treaty basically establishes where a reservation is set up. Well, yes, they do establish that, but they also establish the lands where they left. The U.S. now has the right to build or to use those lands. So you would think if the U.S. broke treaty, not only would that disestablish the reservation, but it would revert back to the Creek Nation having control of the lands in the east that they vacated. Yes. Wouldn't that make sense? That would make sense. But that's not the way the U.S. approaches mm -hmm. it. They would say, well, this would disestablish your reservation, but it also does not give you rights to your lands back in Georgia or in North Carolina, where you were removed from. And again, this is because the worldview is shaped by the doctrine of discovery, which says natives aren't human, we're savages, and we are only occupants of the land. And Europeans have the right of discovery to the land, so therefore they're the true title. Which then makes genocide not genocide. It's, and, and it makes, yeah, so the whole, and this goes, there's, that actually goes deeper into that when the whole notion of American exceptionalism or Sydney on a hill, and we believe that Western Europe had a land covenant with God of Abraham and that Turtle Island was their promised land. And then if you look at the Old Testament, that is what gives permission to commit genocide. Oh, and again, for anyone who hasn't gotten to read Unsettling Truths yet, when Mark mentions Turtle Island, that's a Native American term for uh, North America or just the United States. Um, mostly it's North America, yes. It's, it's, it's the lands here in North America, not just the US. Right. Those borders were established by, by Europe, not by indigenous nation. Yeah, Western Europe specifically coming in and taking over. Well, uh, and speaking of, again, violence by uh, those in power, now how would you handle, personally, you and your team, how would you handle what's going on in Wisconsin with, of course, an, another uh, more police violence and even Portland? Would uh, something I know, of course, but you've spoken to our audience before about uh, coming in and needing to actually change the Constitution which is uh, highly, highly racist and highly sexist. Uh, but what would be something in the immediate, like, okay, people are uh, dying. What is something you would immediately do to handle what's going on? Well, again, this is, this is the challenge that we're facing, which is when, because we have literally 250 years, even 500 years of racial violence, by Europeans, by white Americans, against people of color, primarily African Americans and Native Americans. And because there is such a, a I don't want to say hopelessness, but there is this incredible barrier that people feel they have to get over. And so this is, you know, this is where you protest. You know, you, you see the injustice and you try to bring it to light. 
and you do that by marching, you do that by protesting, you do that by speaking the truth and saying this is something that's wrong and we need to make it right. And so I think one of the reasons that these protests have, have one of the challenges facing our protesters is that our leaders, the country, now look primarily at Donald Trump and at Joe Biden. So after the, the lynching, the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department a few months ago, President Trump signed an executive order banning certain chokeholds. Joe Biden came out with a suggestion and said, we should train our officers to shoot people non-lethal. I think he said we should train them to shoot people in the legs instead of in the chest. But the point was to, to shoot them, not to kill. Well, the challenge is, is both of those solutions are wholly inadequate, right? Because if you look at what's happened to Jacob Blake, yes. he wasn't choked, nor was he shot lethally. But he was still the victim of an incredible systemic injustice. Yes. And so the challenge is, is that the way the nation responds to these problems, again, I said earlier that the United States is highly individualistic. And so they treat these problems as individual problems. And so, yes, Joe Biden called the family and he said, we need to seek justice for, for Jacob Blake. We need to seek justice for George Floyd. We absolutely do need to seek justice. The challenge is, is our foundations weren't written to give justice to not only these individuals, but to people of color in general. And that's the frustration that people are feeling is that there, there's a deep understanding that this nation is not interested or is not even capable of giving justice. And so when they hear their leaders make these very inadequate proposals. Banning chokeholds, while that may be something that should be done at some point, is not going to solve this problem. Training officers to shoot people non-lethally is not going to solve this problem. People are frustrated because we are not dealing with the root of the problem, which is that we have, we have a constitution that doesn't acknowledge the humanity of people of color. We have a constitution that excludes Native peoples, that keeps slavery legal in prison. We have these institutionalized and constitutionally protected understandings of white supremacy and racism. And these are the things that people are trying to protest. And yet, the white landowning majority who is leading this country is not able to hear that and does not want to change that. And so I, I, I feel very strongly that if our campaign, if, our, if we were in office and our administration was able to acknowledge that yes, we have these deeply systemic problems and we are willing to address them, I think that would, that would change a lot of people's reaction to injustices like this because they would know that their voices are actually being heard right now the problem is is that they feel like their voices are not being heard and understandably so and that the solutions that are being proposed are completely inadequate from both sides of the aisle 
Yeah. Okay, but what you're talking about could um, this actually will result, I'm sure, massively in criminal justice reform. Oh, it has to. We absolutely, and, and this is the problem: is we have yes, so we have Donald Trump who banned chokeholds, and we had Joe Biden who said that let's train officers to shoot people non-lethally. Both of them are against proposals like defunding the police. And neither of them have even mentioned the idea that we should probably abolish slavery. Or, or the, or the, or the, from our criminal justice system. Or the fact that you know every cop is so heavily armed. Why can't first? Why, if if you're if the if you pull your weapon, and you shoot somebody, and their back is facing you, you know it's 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 you probably shouldn't shoot them. I would think. You know you should get you should actually get a bonus every year for not shooting somebody as sad as that sounds you know what i mean again well again that's not going to solve the problem I mean, we have to we have to of course move these of institutionalized course. understandings of white supremacy and racism and this is where we have to actually create this common memory and so so much of this you know we, we started this show by talking about the psyche and, and what's going on psychologically for our nation one of the things that I talk about extensively in our book, and I teach classes on trauma, and I, I talk some first about the, the PTSD, the complex PTSD and the historical trauma that afflict our minority communities. Um, but I also go into an understanding of what Rachel McNair has identified as PITS, a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. She identifies it, it's very similar to PTSD, but if PTSD afflicts the victim of a horrifying event, PITS afflicts the perpetrator of a horrifying event. And so in the, my book, I theorize that if, and I, I actually connect PTSD and historical trauma, where PTSD is an individual diagnosis and historical trauma is a communal manifestation of a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. And so you have PTSD individual level, you have historical trauma at the communal level, at the multi-generational level. So I theorize that if PTSD has this multi-generational communal manifestation called historical trauma, it would make sense that PITS would also have a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex form. That is what I would say is afflicting white America. Do you think this uh, so rise in, I like you said, pits, I, do you think that's probably responsible for this uh, massive increase uh, and rise in activity between hate groups? Well, again, so so this is, this is, and I would say this is not a rise. This is what our nation has always done. This is who we are. Huh. Yeah, um, yeah. There's not a rise in this. This is what we've done, right? It was only, it was 50 years ago that we had incredible violence against people of color who were demonstrating for civil rights. It was 50 years ago that we had natives sitting in boarding schools while our government and churches were trying to kill the Indian to save the man. It was 100 years ago that we were, we were, um, well, maybe 150 years ago that we were still enslaving people, yes. and committing genocide and massacres against native people. 
right? This is our nation's history. This is the problem. And so the, the challenge is, is that this is where one of the first symptoms of trauma is shock and denial. Yes. Mm. And our nation, I would argue, is collectively in a state of shock and denial. It doesn't know how to acknowledge its past. I did, I did a, a, a live stream just the other day. Um, there was an execution last week during the Republican National Convention. Of Lesmond Mitchell, right? Lesmond Mitchell, who was a, a native, who was the only native on federal death row. Mm -hmm. And he was, um, he was uh, executed on Wednesday during the four days of the Republican National Convention. And his execution made President Trump the most executing president, I think, since 1960, since Dwight Eisenhower. Um, that was President Trump's fourth execution of his administration. And on Friday, there was a fifth. And in September, they're scheduled to be two more, which will make him make seven, which will almost put him um, above even some of the, the um, both Dwight Eisenhower and Truman. Although I think Truman had eight, I forget exactly. But anyway, so that execution took place against the expressed wishes of the Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation, Lesmond um, Mitchell is a citizen of the Navajo Nation. On reservation land, and the victims were also Navajo. And the Navajo Nation asked the U.S. government to not seek the death penalty because that goes against our cultural and our traditional values. And the U.S. government decided to pursue the death penalty anyway. <laughs> Um, he was convicted in 2003. No one's arguing he was innocent. Yes. But they were asking and saying, we would prefer you give him life in prison rather than executing him because it goes against our cultural and traditional values. And they even sent a letter to President Trump just a few weeks ago at the end of July, again, asking for clemency, asking for leniency, um, and not, not to do the, um, this execution. And the Trump administration went ahead with it anyway. Now, I compared that to the hanging of the Dakota 38. Yes. Which was the largest mass execution in the history of our nation. And it was ordered by Abraham Lincoln. Again, in complete disregard to the sovereignty of the native warriors who were actually fighting a war against the US during that time. And in complete, and, and so when we look at this, and I actually went into how not only was Abraham Lincoln a blatant white supremacist, um, but he also was one of the most genocidal presidents, ethnically cleansing the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and the territory of New Mexico of native peoples to make way for the Transcontinental Railway. And yet we call him our greatest president, even though he was clearly a white supremacist. I have no intention of making voters or jurors of black people, nor allowing them to hold office, nor to intermarry with Abraham Lincoln. Yes. 
there was a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two from living in terms of social and political equality. <laughs> but as long as they must remain together, there has to be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, said Abraham Lincoln, believed that the superior position belongs to the white race. He was a blatant white supremacist who had no value for black lives. It was his 13th Amendment that kept slavery legal in prison. During his inauguration, he advocated for the Corwin Amendment, which would have kept slavery legal in states where it already existed. And he was one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation, and yet we herald him as our greatest president and one of our American heroes. He's seen as the one who abolished slavery, even though slavery was never actually abolished. Nope. This is how much shock and denial the United States is in. We can't even teach an accurate history about one of our most genocidal presidents. If, if, if Nazi Germany came out and had this completely distorted understanding of Hitler and began teaching that he was one of the greatest leaders of Germany and talk about, the world would cry out. It's true. Say, what are you talking about? This is fabrication. These are lies. This is absolutely not true. But this is the same type of thing that we write about Abraham Lincoln, completely ignoring how abhorrent and deadly and genocidal and dehumanizing his policies were towards African Americans and towards Native Americans. We are in an absolute state of shock and denial. We don't know how to acknowledge our past. We don't know what to do with our history. Oh my. Well, I mean, unsettling, but well put. Now, can you tell our audience quickly, what can we do to help Team Mark Charles? Are you, You're still in need of electors in some states, right? We are still in need of electors, yes. Yeah. So um, one of the best things to do is to, uh, you can go to our website and click on markcharles2020.com, click on our ballot access link, and click on the state where you live. And on that link, you'll get the latest update of where we are with ballot access in your state. We are only going to have ballot access probably in one state, which is Colorado. The rest of this, uh, the other way people will vote for us is as a write-in candidate. So we're hoping to have write-in status. We were hoping originally for 36 to 38 states. Because of our challenge getting electors, um, we are not going to be on the ballot in as many states yet. And we're actually adjusting that on a daily basis. And so... We are currently trying to get electors right now in the states of Maine, the states of Michigan. You're breaking up. The states of California, uh, the states of Maine, Michigan, California. Is this better? Oh, yeah, that's better. Okay, yeah. So the states of Maine, Michigan, California, Massachusetts, we're working on this week to get about to get electors in those states so that we can um, we can get write-in status in each of those states. So, um, yeah, we're working very hard. Our, our staff team is uh, doing a lot of work. Just last week, we mailed off, um, we uh, sent in all of our paperwork to get write-in access in the state of Illinois. And to do that, we needed to send to file paperwork with every county in Illinois. So we ended up sending, um, I think it was 108 letters last week. I spent a lot of time in the notary public office last week um, getting all these papers signed and sending them out. And so we will be on the ballot, um, I believe, in all um, all throughout this state. Not on the ballot, but we'll have write-in access in the state of Illinois. 
and uh, we're currently working to get the electors in these other states. So go to our website, Mark Charles 2020, click on ballot access, click on your state, and you'll see what our status is in your state. Uh, there's several states we won't have any access, either ballot access or write-in access. And so um, you'll find out those states on there too. But we are very much pushing as hard as we can. Um, we still are above the 200. We still have the opportunity to have people vote for us in um, enough states that will give us more than 270 electoral college votes. And so if we can get write-in access in the remaining states and the ballot access that we have already, we still can be viable even in the electoral college. Um, but we need people to sign up to be electors for us. Uh, we also um, need donations. Um, we've added several key staff in the past few months. And uh, we, we need to continue keeping the staff on board as well as expanding our staffing. And so uh, we, we're not doing a lot of advertising, um, but we are doing a lot of promotion online and creating media content and videos and things that we, we put out. And so if people are able to donate to our campaign to help us pay our staff, to organize our volunteers and to create media content, as well as there's some states we have to pay fees to um, to get even right in access on. That and so quick. we need to pay fees for that. That adds up quick. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it really does. And of course, on MarkCharles2020.com, you can go there to make the donation there too. Well, hey, but yes. and um, seeing how Kim Jong Il might not or be Kim around anymore, Un might not be around. So if if I work it out to where you play a one on one with his sister, would you take it easy on her, or would you or would you bring your A game? No, I I am being very serious about my foreign policy, and I want to make sure that I I uh, have as best of of the ability to negotiate and have uh, build build relationship with leaders of all these foreign countries. And well, so I need to make sure I stay focused well, on see, that. If, 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 if it was me, I would let her win, and then I would say, "Come on, you beat me in basketball. Now give me what I want for my." country and then she, i would guilt her into it you know <laughs> but that's just me that, that, that's not my foreign policy plan whatsoever <laughs> there you go. so i i will uh, approach all of our um all foreign nations with as much respect and dignity as i possibly can and hope to be able to have um, healthy relationships as well as honest relationships with as many nations as possible. Oh, that sounds like a good plan. It does. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Mark Thanks Charles. Thanks for your time. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate um, everything you're doing, and it's great to talk with both of you. So Always a pleasure you having you on. on again. Absolutely. An honor to have you on. And we'll talk again soon. Oh, absolutely. Right. And thanks, for everybody, for joining okay. us. Right. You thank too. you. All right. Well.